there's something curious about this broadcast. This is Moscow. This is Moscow Corner. On the 12th of April, the Soviet Union orbited a spaceship around the Earth with a man on board. The astronaut is a Soviet citizen, Major Gagarin Yuri Alexeyevich. Ladies and gentlemen, you know it, you love it, you can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. No, no, no. Damn. Hello everybody and welcome to this special edition of TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. If you listen to TGP Nominal Extra at the beginning of the month, you might remember that it was a special edition that was put out as a video presentation for UK Astronomy's Astronomy in April Online Festival. During that episode I stated that TGP Nominal were going to be part of a live streaming event in conjunction with Yuri's Night UK and Astronomy in April to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin becoming the first human in space. Back in the summer of 2019 you might recall the Moon Day event that UK Astronomy and Aylesbury Town Council hosted which I was honoured to be part of and picked up the nickname Rocket Man from. After the event Ross Hockham said well we'll have to do something like this again sometime and I pointed out that 2021 would be Yuri's 60th anniversary and that would be the ideal opportunity for Yuri's Night UK and UK Astronomy to join forces for a Yuri's Night event. Fast forward to February 2021 and Covid-19 once again put a stop to all physical live events but we still wanted to do something different to celebrate Yuri's Night. That's when Ross approached me about hosting a live streaming event for Yuri's Night as part of the free online science festival that he and other volunteers at UK Astronomy were planning in April. I agreed, but I had no experience of live streaming and I had absolutely no idea about what I was going to do. So I put a word out to the people I know in the space community and the rest is history. So join us after this short break for 60 Years and Beyond, a celebration of human spaceflight. I'm Brian May. In 1961, a 27-year-old Yuri Gagarin became the first man ever to go out into space. He spent 108 minutes circling the Earth, and by doing so extended the hand of man towards the stars. But he looked back to his home planet, and he said, and I quote, Circling the Earth in my orbital spaceship, I marveled at the beauty of our own planet. People of the world, let us safeguard and enhance this beauty, not destroy it. I say to you, keep this in mind as we reach out and we thrill to the exploration we're able to undertake into the cosmos. Let us remember that first we need to learn the lessons that will enable us to take care of our own beautiful planet. Let us guard its beauty, as Yuri Gagarin says, let us guard its biodiversity. And I put it to you, we can do more than that. We can treasure the lives and the dignity of every creature on this planet, because we're all created equal, right? So let's think about it, and let's make a planet that we can be proud of before we colonize the rest of the universe. God bless you. Have a wonderful event. Yuri's night is tonight. We are, by nature, explorers. The same curiosity that sends us to the stars at the speed of thought. 
urges us to go there in reality. And whenever we make a great new leap, we elevate humanity, bring people and nations together, usher new discoveries, and new technologies. So remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Be curious. Hello, I'm Chris Lintot. Happy Yuri's Night. Rock the planet. This is TGP Nominal. Hello and welcome to Yuri's Night. Um, my name is Loretta Whitesides. I'm a future astronaut at Virgin Galactic. I'm the founder of Yuri's Night. This is our 20th anniversary Yuri's Night. We're super excited. We kicked off this party in 2001. And at the time we said it was a party we wanted to be celebrated in 10,000 years in the future, a holiday that's still relevant to humanity, even when we're scattered among 12 different star systems. And we're excited to still be going strong after 20 years. Our, this event celebrates the uh, anniversary of Yuri Gagarin, the first human to go into space, April 12th, 1961. So it's the 60th anniversary year this year. It's a big year. And also, 20 years later to the day, the United States had the first space shuttle flight takeoff, April 12th, 1981. And so it's a conjunction of two extraordinary space anniversaries. And we like to use Yuri's Night to celebrate the power of space to bring the world together. So that's what we're about. That's why we encourage people around the world to celebrate this day and to help unify our little planet here. And so we're super excited to have the UK involved this year and hosting events and being doing your part. Um, I know there's also a party going on today in Moscow, so we're super excited to welcome them as well as a bunch of parties in Japan. Um, Antarctica, as well as Africa and throughout the world. So this really is a global celebration. We're excited that the UN has declared this International uh, Human Space Flight Day, uh, and it's already been Cosmonautics Day in Russia for forever. And I just get moved just thinking about what we're capable of as a species when we put aside our egos and do what's best for the future of, of our cosmos. And I challenge you to take on being the person you've always wanted to be because there's something that you came to Earth to do, and hopefully that's something to do with space. Maybe it doesn't. And I challenge you to do it, because if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. And we all need to step up and start being crew of Spaceship Earth. Subscribe to our Twitter feed, our Instagram, go to yurisnight.net, and make sure to check in with us again next year. Keep doing everything you can to use space to bring out the best in you and to bring the world together. Thanks for being part of this journey. Thanks for being part of this community. And thank you so much for your support. And let's rock the planet. Poyahuli. Welcome to Yuri's Night UK. We're doing a kind of a question and answer session. I have a panel of guests with me. First of all, I have Kate Arkless Gray, otherwise known as Space Kate. I have Dr. Ryan Kobrick. And I also have uh, Janelle Harrier Wilson. Kate, if you could tell people a little bit about yourself. Oh, I'm a strange old fish, really. Space wasn't a thing when I was younger. Like, it just wasn't really a thing in the UK that we were taught very much about. But I always liked the idea of um, new boundaries and exciting new stuff. So I set myself the challenge to be a cutting-edge scientist and follow genetics, because that seemed to be, like, the cool thing. Um, and it was going to be the future. And, frankly, it sort of is. But, um, yeah, it wasn't until I was about 29 that I met somebody from NASA and was so 
thrilled at this idea that it was a real person from a real space agency and it made space real for me and I was like wow and I haven't looked back since I'm a massive space nerd I did my best to uh, share my passion share the adventure tell the stories and get people excited about space because yeah it, it is pretty damn exciting <laughs> Ryan what about yourself well I'm a chronic space geek too I think it's almost impossible to trace back to like what the early inspirations were. I mean, I always look, love looking up at the stars, which is you know a great fit that we're connecting here with uh, UK astronomy. So I'm an engineer, so bear with me. I might go all over the place when I talk, but I'll get to a point eventually. And I've always been fascinated by the way things work. And so I think just understanding how not just mechanical things work and how they fit together and, and how they function, but even people are placed here in, in the universe and how that's important for exploration in our future. So I gravitated towards being involved with Yuri's Night almost instantly. As soon as I, I met Loretta in like 2003, I was doing an internship at the XPRIZE Foundation and she's like, want to help with the space party? And I'm like, I'm in, let's do it. So I was heavily involved for a long time. I was the, the chair and president for almost a decade. And now I'm kind of like sitting back, relaxing a bit and just trying to help out here and there by participating in events. So right now my real world job is as an engineer and I'm helping design the life support for the next lunar lander, the human landing system, working at Paragon Space Development Corporation. And I'm living back in Colorado, so we're happy to be back here. Strange things have happened this year and moving across the country from Florida to Colorado with two kids and dog and everything is pretty intense, but that's what exploration is. Uh, you need to be able to you know, take those steps that you both believe in and also that you find satisfaction in uh, what you're working on. And Janelle. Hi, so I am a, a science teacher and I grew up in Florida, been hugely into space pretty much as long as I can remember. I think the first time I went to Kennedy Space Center, I was like 18 months old, so that the space bug hit super early. Um, yeah, and um, I've yeah, had- I need a teacher like you. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Um, so I, I've had opportunity to do lots of cool things as, as an educator to help inspire students in, in space and space education. So I've done like, Space Academy for educators a couple twice which is amazing i did i've done a microgravity flight with nasa which was beyond incredible and and so i'm just trying to reach next generation inspire them to to take up the mantle and and get to the places we haven't managed to get in my generation which is when i was a kid i thought you know by now we'd have be back to the moon and it hasn't happened which is kind of sad so it looks like we're getting closer and i'm really excited about that and hopefully students that i teach will be some of those that will be designing the rockets and and being on the spacecraft and and maybe getting us on, on to mars as well awesome so yuri's night is all about that bringing the world together as loretta said having one goal when we're living off world that we can have one day where we can all get together and celebrate one thing as she said cosmonautics day in russia with the united nations it's now called the international day of human space flight but yuri's night sounds so much better <laughs> um what i would like to ask you all firstly is what was the moment that said to you that space and space flight was your thing I can remember watching stuff on TV, obviously, but I can remember once again watching it on television with my grandfather, STS-1, the Columbia launch, and that was a moment that I had with my grandfather. Then a couple of years later, he, he said, we're, we're going on a field trip, and I was like, where, where are we going? And we went to Stansted Airport, and I thought, well, what are we doing here? All of a sudden, 
this big plane landed with the Enterprise on its back. I'm not talking about the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> um, uh, the prototype for the space shuttle was called the Enterprise. And that was the first time that I saw something up close uh, that changed everything for me. Picking up on that, you seeing something and that made it real for you. I sort of joke that a, a pin badge changed my life but it's actually true. I was given the NASA, a NASA pin badge, the little uh, meatball logo. I didn't know at the time that you could pick them up in the gift stores. I had never been to any of the gift stores. I was in Canada at a theoretical physics conference and I'd been producing these outreach sessions called Science in the Pub. And like any good producer, I'd had a couple of drinks and at the end uh, of the session, are we all going to live on Mars? Um, I was super excited, it'd gone really well. Uh, and I went to talk to Dr. Chris McKay, the astrobiologist. Oh my goodness, like if somebody had told me that astrobiology was a subject that I could have studied, then wow. Sorry, genetics, but that would have been really cool. <laughs> and yeah, I was talking to him, and for me, that was literally the first time that space became real. You know, all my life I'd been interested in it. I love looking up at the stars, even though, you know, as a Londoner, I don't really get to see that many of them. So yeah, when I've traveled around the world and, and had dark skies and seen the Milky Way, you know, that's blown my mind completely. But I'd never really kind of appreciated that it was something that I could be part of or I could be involved in. So that's why I think, you know, the work that Janelle does with the students is so incredibly important and making it real for people. So anytime I go to an event now, I'll, I'll pick up an extra sticker or a badge and I look out just generally if I see somebody who looks like they might be excited about space, big kid, little kid, I don't mind, I will, will hand them over the thing. Because when actually I was given this pin badge, slightly embarrassing story, but I was so excited. I got very high pitched, squeaked about it because he'd said, I've got something for you, reached into his pocket, give me the pin badge. I thought that this was his official staff pin. I thought I was very special and I had been given an official staff pin from NASA and was very squeakily excited about it. And Chris, bless him, calmly sort of said, oh, um, I always carry a few of those in my pockets. I kind of paused for a moment thinking, oh, I'm not special. And then he said, just in case I meet any small children. And I was like, oh my gosh, I embarrassed myself in front of like the first person I've ever w met who works in actual NASA. I made an impression, we stayed in touch, and that's where my adventure began. So making space real, I think, is really important. Actually, you say in that the private astronaut, Richard Garriott, he always carries a few mission patches with him wherever he goes, just in case. It's a great thing to do. Yeah, super <laughs> thing to do. I was once given, sorry, uh, tell me to shut up. I get excited about space and then I rabbit on, but no. I, I once had the honor of meeting one of the Japanese astronauts and he gave me a set of his mission patches. And again, I was like, wow, these are just amazing. And he said, oh, well, you know, I mean, they make good drinks coasters. <laughs> yeah. I said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm going to frame these things. He's like, oh, well, you could do that if you want, but, but they are pretty good drinks coasters. What about you, Janelle? I mean, are you, you grew up in Florida, so... I did, and we would sometimes be able to see um, space launches from from our house. We lived on the opposite coast, on the Gulf Coast, but pretty much just on the opposite side of Florida. And I never actually had a chance to see a launch in person at Kennedy Space Center until STS-132, which was supposed to be the final flight of Atlantis, but became its first final flight, if anybody knows that story, because they ended up doing a, a second flight for the actual final, final flight of the program. Uh, like I said, I first visited Kennedy Space Center when I was 
like too young to remember, but obviously old enough for it to make an impression on me. So I was like hugely into space ever since and, and just really, really loved everything to do with space. When I was a kid, I would I had magazines I subscribed to that were space magazines. One of them was for kids and one of them was astronomy magazine, which is one for adults. I would check out all of the astronomy books in the library so much that they started buying new astronomy books in, in the library. So that was kind of cool. You know, I didn't think a whole bunch of uh, much about it. I went to university and I got a degree in psychology and then I was like, what, why, I don't know. And then I got into teaching and science teaching, which I absolutely love. And, and then I got back into really space and space education. And part of it started on Twitter and I know Everyone here is on Twitter, and um, I met people when I first joined Twitter, and I think I joined in 2009, so it's been a while, um, who are really into into space, and people who worked at NASA, and I made some really good friends, and I, there's this group that, and I know some of you know about it too, the Space Tweet Society, and, and got to know people, and, and started meeting up with people, and that was just really cool, and then I got, like I said, I got to go to space camp and do all these other things, so I think that was kind of what really got me first interested in it just as a child, but then into it as, as this outreach side and education side um, as well as I once I started teaching and then getting back into space and and now that I know people and know astronomers and engineers and stuff it's really cool because I'm able to connect my students with people who actually work in the industry which is amazing and that's one of my favorite things to do and Ryan growing up in Canada I mean that must have been a bit different for embracing space yeah um, these stories are awesome I just try to think of like okay what was my journey again and uh it's really like all the small things adding up when i was like in grade seven julie payette came to visit our school and i got to be like the ambassador student who got to greet her and you know walk around with her and so like that's you know it's a small thing but it's a, it's enough to be extremely memorable also you know all roads go through florida eventually right we're all going to launch not all but there's lots of other places to launch but um you know all the humans in north america mostly launching from there especially growing up i still have tickets from ksc from when i was six when we visited because my grandparents lived in florida so we would go down almost every winter and then we would go to disney for a few days and sometimes we'd go all the way to ksc because they were also in on the other coast in clearwater there's a photo somewhere of me and my brother like in front of the crawler like the shuttle crawler so it's just those little pieces kind of fitting together they're they've always been there it's kind of like you know you go back and watch like a uh, a movie and you're like oh look all those pieces were there all along it's just a, no one maybe they didn't see them until later so you know i was already a big fan of space and in undergrad chris hadfield came to visit us at queen's uh, university um got to chat with him and got to meet julie payette again um, and then really it was grad school that really accelerated my actual involvement. Um, there was no clubs or anything at that time. And I highly recommend for anyone who's just say an undergrad, if there isn't a space club or some sort of activity, definitely just create one. Uh, there's a lot of options. There's like SEDS, there's uh, astronomy groups, there's, there, there's, they're countless. Just reach out to any SGAC of us and we'll help. as well. Yep, SGAC is uh, Space Gen. Um, Space Gen's involved with a lot of different events, like the International Astronautical Congress, where a lot of us always cross orbits, which is the best place to do that. And so my, my step into grad school was with the International Space University, and that really connected me to all these different streams of activities. Um, everything from my internships with XPRIZE as a starting point, but getting involved with analog research, I ended up spending four months in the Arctic on a Mars simulation, 
got to you know do a whole bunch of cool things as well and it was just really the connection and the network that really opened things up scs 132 i was part of the tweet up as well janelle were you part of the tweet up or were you yeah were, i was yeah, yeah, yeah. part of the tweet up so yep. see there you go see we're just crossing orbits back and forth this is how it works <laughs> this is the space industry this is it doesn't matter what country you're from or living in or any of those things it's like if you have the passion you're gonna just keep re-meeting these people or, you know, even collaborating with them along the way. So yeah, all right. those things. Right when they call yeah. it like a space family, yeah. you know, I would have never yeah. thought about it like that. You know, space is such a, I know, I just thought it was such an elite, magical, I don't know, only, you know, I used to think like astronauts were superheroes. Yeah. yeah. You know, they were like completely invincible. They were like Father Christmas. You know, you knew that they existed, but you were never going to meet them. <laughs> and then, and then I met them. And then I watched as somebody that I had met was sat on top of a rocket that was about, you know, on countless tons of rocket fuel and they were about to light that candle and suddenly I was like, oh, you're not invincible. <laughs> you are a real person and oh my gosh, you know, it's actually really terrifying. Um, I'm, I missed you both because I was on the tweet up for STS-133 um, and what an adventure that was. Um, <laughs> But when I first went out there, I'd never seen a rocket launch. You know, I was expecting to see the power and the smoke and the sound and the excitement. But I didn't really think about, oh, and there's like six people on there. Yeah, like I said, like superheroes, you just don't meet them. But yeah, when you when you sort of join the space family, when you get to be part of the community, you realize actually it's pretty welcoming. It's pretty small and it's extremely global. And I think that's one of the things I loved about the Space Generation Advisory Council. Um, unfortunately, you're only allowed to be a member until you're 35, and I only discovered it when I was 34. <laughs> um, but it's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, the, the number of people that I met from all around the world who all share this passion, and it's just so nice because, I don't know, you, you could be completely different people, but you all share this passion for space. And so you meet, and it's like you're instantly friends for a quite intense burst of a conference or something. And then you've got this, like, network of people all around the world. and. Actually, for me during COVID, it's been really nice. I, I, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm stuck at home, I can't travel. But then I get reports of how other people are dealing with it in their countries. And suddenly I kind of feel like, oh, you know, I'm still connected. We're all still part of this thing. We're in it together. And that, yeah, that's really helped. When I first started uh, podcasting, I just thought it was going to be myself and my co-host just back and forth about space. And then one day I, I got an email from NASA Goddard Flight Center uh, asking whether we would like some personnel to interview. I thought, well, is, is, is this legit? You know, this, this can't be right. So I forwarded it to my co-host and we went through it all and he said, it looks real to me. So I wrote back to them and said, yeah, this would be fantastic. And then after sending the email, I thought to myself, well, hang on a moment. We didn't contact NASA. NASA contacted us. Somebody at NASA has listened to this podcast. That blew my mind. That's a nice feeling. <laughs> that remind me of um, going back to what Kate said about Chris McKay. Chris McKay's awesome. He actually helped us with a whole bunch of our Mars simulation stuff. And he's one of those heroes, like space heroes. Uh, it's not just the astronauts. I mean, it's a little bit of, it's everyone, of course, but definitely Chris. <laughs> he's a dream. He can take something incredibly complex and just explain it to you, not make you feel stupid, explain it in an incredibly simple term. So you're like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. If you then look at all the, the literature that he has managed to sort of somehow amalgamate in his head and then put out as just one sentence. And yeah, it's probably like years worth of studying that he's just 
shared with you in this amazing soundbite. And he's great at soundbites too, which my background's radio. So having somebody that can say something sensible in a short space of time and not kind of start a sentence, drift off, talk about something else, come back, you know, he's perfect for that. And, and, and so welcoming. He'll, he'll be I'm... on the, the UK event for 2022. So stay tuned for Chris McKay. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it when I was at uh, the first Space Rocks event. When you're doing the interviews and things, they throw them in at you straight away. You don't know who you're going to interview. So you're trying to come up with questions for someone that you haven't particularly met before. They always say, don't meet your heroes. And I got to meet Matt Taylor, who's one of the head engineers and scientists for the Rosetta program. Meeting him was amazing once again he puts things in a very comprehensive way uh, and makes it easier for you to understand and not only that at the weekend he's a stormtrooper <laughs> that's so he's part of the 501st i guess yeah he's part of the dutch yeah. garrison yeah okay cool <laughs> i don't know if you remember kate at space rocks you had the scientists you had people like brian may and the scientists were like, oh my gosh, it's Brian May. And Brian May's like, oh my gosh, it's a load of scientists. So it was like, <laughs> <laughs> because we were in the green room area, having a beer with Tim Peake was a surreal moment. It, it really was. I think, yeah, actually maybe it was one of the last, you know, maybe it's the last IAC. And uh, there was some kind of gathering at, at one of the booths. And there was a chap and he was sat down on his own and he had a, a little sweater on, but on his sweater was like a really nice looking mission patch. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought, well, that's a good icebreaker, isn't it? I, I like to just talk to people. And it's usually me feeling a little bit like the outsider. And I don't quite belong. So I thought if there's somebody on their own, I'll go and talk to them. And I said, oh, I, you know, I like your, your mission patch. And he said, I am cosmonaut. And it turned <laughs> out he was Helen Sharman's commander. Oh, wow. On the Juno mission. And we, we sat and we chatted for a while and we, you know, we had a glass of fizz and he wanted some more, but they stopped doing it. We created a WhatsApp group of the uh, SGAC and the young professionals. And we would share, you know, where are the plug sockets? Where's the Wi-Fi? Who's got food on their stand? Or I'm giving my presentation here. <laughs> so I put a quick message yeah. out who's still serving alcohol? And we went off to find him another glass of wine. <laughs> there you go, using technology to, to help astronauts and cosmonauts. Yeah. yeah, that's the way the way the internet was designed. <laughs> Having met Tim Peake or having met astronauts, do you not feel like it's sort of your duty now to, to pass that on? Because, you know, to, to connect, I know that people around where I live, they won't have met an astronaut. Mm. And I'm not saying I'm an astronaut, but I have met an astronaut. So at least I'm like a little connection just to make it feel like, you know, you two could be a part of this. You could be, mm -hmm. and I think we really, you know, as an industry need to ensure that we get a more diverse range of people and, you know, different backgrounds on it. I mean not just like in terms of where in the world but also in terms of your financial background as well i think it's really important just to sort of say look you know come and be part of this it's relevant to you there is space for you oh gosh didn't mean to make that pun but there is space for you there's space for everyone so we, we just had a question come through and it is if you could invite anybody from the space industry whether they be alive or dead to a dinner party, who would it be and why? Besides Chris McKay? <laughs> joking. Uh, I'll let you guys answer this first. I need to think about this. That's a really hard question. It's hmm. a great question though. The thing is, from what I've heard about some of the, the original astronauts, I mean, if you were to invite them to a dinner party, 
I think it would get a bit wild, some of oh, them. Oh, definitely. It would definitely be wild. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I've heard lots of stories of from the originals. Because uh, at Space Camp, Ed Buckby used to talk to us about um, all the goings on with the, some of the original astronauts because he was one of the um, original kind of like wranglers of them. And yeah, <laughs> they were a wild bunch. They were a wild bunch. Now wondering what's a better title, Future Astronaut from Loretta Whitesides or Astronaut Wrangler. <laughs> right? I would really like to meet Michael Collins. Because mm. he, you know, he was like on the far side of the moon, on his own, doing something that had never been done before. I read his book and it was interesting and he sort of explains it, but wow, I just really love to talk to him about how isolated and, I mean, that must have been terrifying. I saw a tweet that he put up around the anniversary of the moon landings somebody asked him the question out of the three of you who told the worst jokes uh, is it neil or buzz and he said no i told the worst jokes and i thought is that the reason why they left you behind <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. he's the, not forgotten but he's like the lesser known because yeah. the other two walked on the moon but, but right. he did something that was also kind of incredible Mm -hmm. he, he was scheduled to be on uh, Apollo 18, uh, so he never got his chance to actually to go to the moon. So I feel sorry for him in that respect. But well, then you've got like Jim who went to the moon twice but never walked on never, it. Yeah. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. I, I would have loved to have met Al Bean because my research and current work involved lunar dust and lunar dust mitigation and properties. And I love how he then took that and incorporated that into his kind of his next uh, career of being an artist and put it right into the paintings. I, I just would have, it'd be really, I wouldn't want to have dinner unless it was walking around his gallery or something. So maybe have a beer, a tour or something, that kind of a dinner, liquid dinner with Albine would be really cool. Because there's, there's texture to it. Uh, and there's also actual real footprints because there's the, the print of a moon boot actually in the artwork, uh, which makes it completely unique to anything else that was out there. And he had his like original patches and yeah. like cut little tiny bits off and ground them up and sprinkled little bits of those into his paintings. Beautiful. A amazing artist. And, and the funny thing is a lot of uh, astronauts are very gifted when it comes to arts and things like that as well. Have you seen the artwork that uh, uh, Alexei Leonov created? Uh, he, he, cosmonauts he... exhibition where they had his colouring pencils from space, a little box of pencils and then they had string on them to tie them to the box so that they didn't all float away. And he drew like a, a little sunrise that he'd seen from the capsule eyes. It was beautiful. Well, I, I just loved the way that the Russians deal with things in a very simple way, but of a, an effective way. The little floating toy that you see in the Soyuz to tell you when you're actually in space. I mean, that's such a simple thing and used on every single flight. One question I wanted to ask was, you guys have all seen rocket launches. What was that like for you the first time you actually saw something launch? I mean, it's, it's an amazing feeling. Quite emotional the first time. I found for me, like I said, STS-132, that was the first one I saw um, in person. And, I, you know, like Ryan mentioned, we were at the tweet up and which means we were at the press site, which is three miles from the launch pad and you can't really get much closer than that. And it was an amazing day. We were really lucky, unlike Kate, who had an adventure because um, it <laughs> oh, launched on time. Too. And 
the brightness of it is incredible because I think I wasn't really prepared for how bright it was going to be, like sudden almost brightness. And then you you know that the the sound is going to come later because the you know the speed of sound is so much slower than the speed of light. But when you actually experience that that wave of sound coming towards you across the water and then it hits your body and it you feel the vibrations, that is just incredible. And then just afterwards, after it's on its way and out of sight and you just stop and, and, and kind of reflect on everything you've just seen. It's just incredible what, what we've done, you know, as, as a species, we've launched people into space and it's really incredible to think about that and all of the engineering that goes behind it, but it's just really emotional that once it's over. Yeah. I've got two mini stories. My first, I guess you can say set of launches was in 2004, was actually seeing Spaceship One on its three different flights. So the first one was a test flight in June and then the winning of the Inseri X Prize later on in September and October. Wow. Growing up, we would always watch like the air show in Toronto. So you're used to like jets, you know, going by super fast. And it was, I think the the more, uh, I guess, unreal or like, wow, this is really weird and cool and bizarre was the actual taxiing before the sun rises, watching White Knight lift Spaceship One. Um, away from you and you just kind of see it circling like oh there's a plane in the air and then you see them kind of separate and then you, you don't really hear it or feel it or anything and you just see like the smoke start and it just starts moving away and um, it's just it's very far away it's very silent it's very different that way and then just as it was coming back down kind of circling down kind of gliding down with a couple of chase planes and then coming to the runway and kind of skidding to a stop and then they you know hooked it up and brought it right in front of everyone it was very, I don't know, private is kind of one word for it, but it was like, it was very like calm and like and exciting and everything all at the same time. Mm. And my first, like, I guess you can say from the ground launch was um, STS-125. And um, so I was uh. at that time working for Bioserve at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where I was doing my PhD. And I wasn't working the launch, but I went with the lab to try to help out. Um, they're like, sure, we, we can get you on site. You can help out us prepare for, it was like a microbe experiment for the astronauts to activate in space. So I got to be behind the scenes and see the Space Life Science Building and then prep the samples to be put onto the space shuttle. We got to go to the crew walkout and they were filming the IMAX because it was the Hubble, the last Hubble mission, servicing mission. And it was just like being on a movie movie set, um, or I guess that's what it would be like on a movie set, I have no idea. Um, so it was just like really cool to like be part of this and watch the crew walk out and these, you know, this boom giant camera swinging by and seeing them off in the Astro van to the launch pad. Um, and then I kind of joked that, you know, your first shuttle launch or your first big launch like that. Um, it's like your first time and you can read into that as much as you want. You've got your camera, you're fumbling around, you're not sure what's going on. You're like, is this happening? And you try to take a photo and it's all blurry. Um, but you definitely want to just, you know, watch, enjoy, feel it. But yeah, the rumble uh, that hits you with oh, the space shuttle is, is like nothing else. Yeah, it's it really, really cool. is amazing. I, I can't remember if it was Penn or Teller, but one of them wrote uh, a really nice piece about it's like the ultimate punchline. Because you're just kind of going, you know, you watch it and you're like, wow, you know, all the smoke comes out and there's the light and then it goes. And so STS-133, uh, it left 115 days late. I packed my bag for 10 days. I stayed for about four and a half months in the US. Thankfully, on a journalism visa. I didn't break the law. It's all okay. Um, <laughs> so I had like this crazy, amazing adventure. And yeah, so when it finally, finally happened, we tweet up people were so excited, we're all cheering and whooping. And when that sound died down, 
there was just this kind of quietness mm-hmm. and it is that kind of like oh sh- shouldn't we hear it by now and then just as you're kind of going where's the noise it it sort of starts kind of rumbling and, and then it gets louder and louder and then it, it literally is just like pounding in your chest and mm-hmm. it makes a kind of weird it's almost like a popping noise it's almost like it's like ripping the sky apart and it is wow one of the tweet up people had um decided they'd taken the advice it was their first shuttle launch so they weren't going to watch it through the camera sensible so they set it up as a little video they got it all right on a table and it's brilliant you you see this sort of shuttle and it goes through the frame launches and then you know you wait and then the sound comes and you just see the little camera just go <laughs> and it falls off the table and it's like yes that is how powerful it is remember the first time i went to see a shuttle launch and it got scrubbed because Cape Canaveral Sailing Club decided to have some kind of regatta or something and this boat decided to go in range and uh, yeah it got scrubbed and it was going to take place again the next day but I wasn't actually in that part of Florida Uh the next day but we did find out which direction to look we must have been about 50-60 miles away where we was up about 6 o'clock in the morning the best place to see it was this grass verge uh, where there was kind of like a a bus stop a trolley bus service went from this grass verge and we were near enough waiting by this bus stop and a group of German tourists came along and they said, are you waiting for a bus? And I said, no, actually, we're waiting for a space shuttle. And they started laughing and said, seriously, I'm waiting for a space shuttle. And so just look in that direction. And sure enough, a few minutes later, we saw this plume, this sort of gold white plume go into the sky. And then about four minutes later, we heard it. It was an amazing sound. And uh, these guys were like, oh, we're, we're glad we stood with you now because we, we never would have got to see this. Uh, but I did get to go back the next year uh, and I got to see STS-101 launch. I can't remember which shuttle that was now. Yeah, that was that was amazing. No, but that's a lot of fun. Like when you bring in people that are unexpected, not even aware that there's about to be a launch and they experience that with you, a lot of times they'll just be like what's going on asking questions and i think that's like more fun i would say and for a launch experience so i lived in cape canaveral for four years and in the four years we watched over 50 launches and every single one i'm like i'm getting my camera out i don't care if it's three in the morning but yeah we were chasing launches from every angle uh and each each one is memorable in a different way i do the same with the space station when it's flying over if i know it's going to be a good pass i knew there was going to be a good pass over Trafalgar Square. It was a beautiful clear night. It was gonna be a really bright pass. And I, I saw it and then there was a group of tourist school kids mm-hmm. started walking through. I just thought, I'm just gonna go and talk to the teachers. And I, I got this whole group of people just <laughs> randomly like looking like, whoa. <laughs> that is crazy to me as well, that I can look up mm-hmm. and I can see a space habitat that people have been living on for what? What are we at now? 20, 21 years? There, there are people alive in this world. 21 years, yeah. And they have never experienced a day in their life where there has not been somebody living in space. It is unbelievable. Incredible, absolutely. I mean, I can kind of share that with them because uh, the year I was born, through the months I was born and after Skylab, so I was born into people living in space, so I can share that same feeling with them. (laughs) 
It's important that we open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to continue to discover the universe of possibility and to know that we have the power to create a future for ourselves here on Earth that's as beautiful as it looks from space. I believe that we have an obligation to share it fairly with everyone, to preserve it to the best of our ability. That's the thing we should remember around the 60th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's space flight. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of TGP Nominal and its infinite mission to explore space, science, and technology news. To explore the world of sci-fi, comic cons, and gaming. To boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Just had another question come through. It's on, a, on a slightly more serious note, uh, it, it says, uh, with all the tension between the USA and Russia over the years, why and how have they both managed to maintain cooperative and productive relationship with regards to space? Space unites. So all the tension and all the, the bad vibes and everything, as soon as you get through that hatch, you leave it at the hatch. It's not like being part of the Earth anymore. You are you, you are a team. You've got to get on. If you don't get on, you're not going to survive. I think, too, a lot of the, the tension is between politicians, not between astronauts, cosmonauts, scientists. And I think that's part of it as well. They're outside of the conflict, and so they want to work together. You know, it's this big international endeavor. You know, when you go to space conferences, you quite often hear, and I don't know if it is actually a traditional African proverb or not, but they say, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think the further we want to explore the universe, the more we're going to have to do together. Mm-hmm. And and the, the basis of like international collaboration that we have had is incredibly important. And you've got things like the International Astronautical Federation, and there's also what I think is the coolest club in the world, which is the, uh, oh gosh, what is it? The Association of Space yep. Explorers. You, know, you can only be a member of this club if you have orbited the Earth at least once. How cool is that? But they, yeah. they have meetings each year and they, they talk as friends. 
because they are you know they have more in common than they have as differences and i think that's the important thing is you know think about why we're the same and not why we're different if you've read um ron garan's book um the orbital perspective and there's a wonderful section where they're talking about the early days of the international space station development and the meetings where the uh, the americans would go in and they thought that the Russians were very unprofessional because they were getting, you know, they would shout and maybe bang their fists on the table or walk out. And the Russians thought that the Americans just didn't care. You know, because they were just sitting there quietly, there was no passion. No passion, yeah. Yeah, and it, it was just that, like, they both had the same goals in the end, but the way that they communicated those goals was slightly different. So yeah, again, understanding each other is important. Partnership with the space station, which has already been mentioned, it, the common mission and assets as well is a heavy part of that. So the question is what happens after the International Space Station? If we don't have a international program like that, how is that partnership going to unfold and what is that going to do to the, the different space relationships? So that's something to kind of keep an eye on in future of exploration is, you know, who are the partners? How are they involved? And just one other kind of side thought about the boundaries, political boundaries. There's some very difficult ones. Uh, as an engineer working in the U.S., you know, one of the big things is that we absolutely can't do anything with China, which makes sense. But uh, when it comes down to it, you know, the U.S. had to recently contact Chinese space agency to get data for Mars. So it's not like there are lines in the sand that can't be crossed. Uh, it's just a matter of how we do that. and these agencies around the world are working together. There's no like, we can't, we'll never talk to that agency again kind of thing um, going on. It's, it's there it really is a desire to want to unite and be able to share data and work together. What do you think is going to happen with Gateway? The idea that we would have the next international collaboration as Gateway stationed by the moon, but Russia's not particularly happy that America wants to have the bigger part in that. And then, you know, what if they don't come on board? What if Russia and China and India decide to do something together and leaves the US behind because mm -hmm. when Mike Pence was talking at the International Astronautical Congress, I'm not sure he knew his audience because he kept talking about how America <laughs> was going to be number one and America was yeah. going to be the best at space and and like there's all these people from around the world about to do all these like multinational deals and he's like America this and oh those other people. I think we need part two of this conversation because that we will go on for a long time but um, <laughs> the money side of it is a big part of it. There's a lot of other countries that are now involved that were not previously involved and UAE is a good example. You know they're ready and they want to get involved and they're doing a lot of uh, missions already in uh, lunar landers to humans in space and everything else. So if we're not trying to figure this out together, then you know it's gonna be a lot of chaotic programs going on at the same time. So programs like Gateway, hopefully you know, they help bridge those gaps again and find ways to connect the pieces, if you will, like literally connect the modules. I know as a Canadian American that Canada's involved, you know, we've got Canada arm number 17 or whatever. No, <laughs> Canada arm is uh, ready to go. Like, I mean, that's part of the partnership. Honestly, is... Canada has pulled off such a, we pulled off a blinder with Canada arm. I mean, like what a yeah. stroke of marketing genius that was. Yeah, it's so important for Canada that it's on our $5 bill. If you look at the back of the $5 bill yeah. for Canada, you'll see the I, uh, both the Canadian arm. And Signed by Chris Hadfield. I've been um, carrying around a $5 Canadian bill in my wallet for a decade now. Since it, I think it was about a decade when it came out. It's not the original one that I started with, but I always have one in there just in case. So I mean, that's great outreach. You know, that's a yeah. way oh, of yeah. making it literally touchable. Have it in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> right, we've got a few questions come through now. 
two of them are kind of related in in, in many respects. The first one was uh, how did being the first person in outer space affect Yuri? Well, if you listen to the official line, it didn't affect him at all. He was invincible, but. I think when he came back to Earth, I mean, because he wasn't allowed to go back into space again. Now he was backup crew for Soyuz One, I think. He wasn't allowed to fly again because they were worried that something might That's happen to, yeah, national treasure. So I think that affected him greatly because you know he'd spent his entire career for that moment to happen once and never happen again. The, uh, is it Moon Dust? Uh, the, the guy goes to meet all the Moonwalkers, but the, the first chapter of that book really along these kind of same lines you know all these astronauts went to the moon walked on the moon came back like what do you do then mm. i mean like what really is there to strive for like you've literally done well not impossible because it's you've done it but you know there, what, what higher goal could you possibly have you've, you've mm. been to the moon and back and i think that did affect quite a lot of them so right. it would be really interesting to know especially if you'd lived a little longer you know how that would have played out for yuri Actually, one of the things he, when he came back, they put him back in the training program as uh, one of the lead trainers for, for the other cosmonauts. But one of the things he was also doing was trying to design reusable rockets. So, you know, Yuri was thinking about that back then. It's quite amazing. There's your dinner party guest from the earlier question, right? Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Especially on Yuri's night. Come on. <laughs> we <Yeah. didn't> <laughs> but yeah, he did, he went on tour. I mean, he traveled, he came to the UK and, um, you know, was kind of sharing a vision of uniting and that's was very bizarre for someone from the soviet army to go around saying those things so and there's a beautiful quote that's somewhere on the Aries night page about what he his reflections in orbit and looking down and um you know those are so those are common things that have uh, been said for astronauts for generations about the overview effect and it's pretty amazing to think about and yeah that that should be uh our future time travel guest, I guess, is to talk to Yuri. Yeah, because he came across as so genuine and down to earth. I mean, when he came to the I UK... I describe astronauts as down to earth. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he, he went to Manchester and he went to a, a metalworks, a foundry there, where he started his, his life as a, as a foundry man back in Russia. The unions, uh, the steelworks unions, actually gave him a medal, the highest honour that they could give you as, as, a, as a, a union member. And he basically said, I am one of you guys. That, that's the way he saw himself. So leading on from that, does going into space affect your body? Well, we know this <laughs> does. You just asked the, the Kelly twins uh, whether it affects your body. I mean, spending a year in, in space, Commander Kelly said that it took something like six months for his eyesight to get back to normal. Um, he, he was seeing sort of like bright flecks every time he, he went outside and he wasn't able to walk properly for a, for a long time. This is the thing you've got to worry about. If we're thinking of going to Mars as a colony, is it physically possible to do? Can we stay there permanently? Well, as scientists, I think we have to do it and find out. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're doing all the, you know, the tests and things now. That's why we use the, the space station to start looking at how it affects you and the long duration stuff. I mean, I, I love the, um, the Kelly twins story because as a geneticist, it's like you're doing a twin study and it's the ultimate twin study. One astronaut in space, one astronaut, because they were both astronauts, 
you know, on the ground, and then yeah. you, you sort of go along and compare them. But it, it does have some pretty big effects on you. You know, you lose bone and muscle mass, even if you're doing your exercise every day. You know, your heart shrinks, I think. You get motion sickness, space sickness when you're in space, because what you're seeing with your eyes doesn't match up with the, the fluid in your ears that is what usually tells you, I'm looking left, right, up, down, because all that, you know, in microgravity, all that fluid is going around and tickling bits of your ear. So your ear is saying, I'm upside down, and your eyes are going, no, I'm not. And then that can make you very, very sick. I, I heard that um, one of the bits of advice for shuttle astronauts was when you, when you come down, when you land and you come out of the shuttle, you will be tempted to just look around and have a look at the thing that just brought you back safely from space. But don't do that, because if you look around too quickly, you're just going to throw up. Right, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so we need to factor in vomit time for landing on Mars, for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It, the uh, space station usually has you know six months rotation, and the reason for that is that that's approximately the duration that it would take to get to Mars and living in microgravity. And until we have something like a short arm centrifuge or other things that can help load your bones and help with the fluid shift, it's, there's a lot that would need to be overcome. Um, but there are astronauts that are coming back with uh, equivalent muscle uh, density and muscle mass because of both drugs, exercise, everything else. But they still have that transition of you know not being able to walk function right away so uh if we're transiting to mars we have to factor that in you can't just land the crew and then expect them to walk out the door and look at me i'm on mars let's grab a rock or two and start science it's not going to happen like that they they need a transition recovery period as well there if was you want somebody them to come who back, suggested yeah that in order to test for whether astronauts would be able to get out of a capsule on mars we should mm -hmm. just let a crew that had been in space on the iss get out of their spaceship on their own without anybody helping them yeah I I, I mean, a little bit harsh yeah, yeah. that be it would be i mean they if you look at the photos of all the astronauts cosmonauts who come back in kazakhstan um they're basically lifted out and put into a chair and covered with you know lion skins and fur and they, they they're stuck they can't move they can't get out of that chair they need that help so the other thing is, if you want to come back from Mars, just say it was just a Mars mission, then you've also got to condition yourself to go not just from one third gravity, but to microgravity and that back to one G. And yeah. that's going to take more than month to month recovery. That might take years of recovery. I like to say that the, the ultimate uh, simulation would be to go up to the ISS six months, microgravity, then go land in the Arctic for a year, do your Mars simulation, then launch back up to space somewhere from the Arctic, of course, we'll have to get another pad, uh, go back to the space station for six months you know you have to slowly board up all the windows so you don't have the view because there's a whole psychological side of it as well and then come back yeah. to earth again so you know have a two-year mission with some of those variables to see what happens to the body and i don't think anyone would ever approve that but being on earth and that close to friends and family and not being able to actually talk to them either in real time there's there's a lot of variables but there's a lot of things we can do to at least do pieces of the puzzle to try to figure it out i wonder janelle like so you studied psychology yeah, well, that's the thing that I've really wondered about is, you know, never mind the radiation, never mind the space sickness and the bone density and all of this stuff. You know, if you are really traveling to Mars, at some point on the journey, you're going to look around and Earth is just going to be a small speck. Is there any kind of way that we can really properly see how that might affect us? Because I, I think, you know, again, I, I want to talk to Mike Collins about this kind of thing, but, you know, how 
how weird and disconnected and I know they do obviously they do a lot of test psychological testing before choosing the astronauts and mm. before the missions and things like that but you know we can do the earth analog studies but you still know you're on earth and I think that you know if I have a major medical emergency helps just outside the door which is completely different if you're actually on the way to Mars and I do think yeah I think you're right what the psychological aspects and how that will affect the astronauts it would be hard to know ahead of time because we can't really analog it here. I remember Beth Healy was saying that when they were doing their project, I mean, it was 18 months, I think they were pretty much locked up for in, in that environment. And people were going a bit stir crazy. I mean, it was almost like being in lockdown. Uh, you know, people were hiding chocolate bars because they were worried that somebody else was going to steal it from them. They were just hiding things in the rafters and, and things like that because they were so, you know, this is mine kind of thing. Overwinter in Antarctica when there's, you know, there's no sunshine either. Mm. I mean, I can't bear, you know, winter in London yeah. when everything goes grey is bad enough, but overwintering yeah. in Antarctica would be... But there's stars and aurora, so... Yeah. And little yeah. known fact, the BBC, I don't know if they still do, but the BBC Science Radio Unit used to produce a program that would go out on their winter solstice, so the shortest day in Antarctica, which would be summer for us here. And we would put together a program. Each of the British bases was allowed to choose a song, <laughs> uh, or two songs maybe. So they, and it, they, you could see where like, they'd chosen a song that they liked, and then they'd chosen like, a really annoying song, like the <laughs> Manamana thing, just to annoy their colleagues in the other day. <laughs> And then we'd get, um, you know, messages from their family and maybe get a, a celebrity or somebody to send them a nice message. And it was just broadcast down to Antarctica. And they apparently on that day, they'd have like a sort of mini Christmas sort of thing and they'd swap some presents and they'd listen to this program. And that helped them feel a bit more connected. They do celebrate Yuri's Night in Antarctica at the, mm -hmm. at the different camps. So um, <laughs> the thing I, I used to joke about saying, well, at least you're guaranteed to get a cold drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> if you actually, if you want to see um, like a Yuri's Night toast from um, the 10th anniversary from a decade ago, there's a cool video that's on the Yuri's Night YouTube page that you can check out of the of the team down there doing a toast out in the snow. So I think they told mm -hmm. me later that they couldn't actually drink from the toast because it froze in the cup. So they had to like then bring it back inside. And like, yeah, you you, you got to question your your living conditions when your vodka freezes outside. So no, it wasn't that it wasn't that cold, but well, uh, at least if they if they'd have put a, a straw in it, they could have had it as a popsicle, which would have yeah, been yeah yeah. There you go. <laughs> Next question was, if you could go anywhere in the solar system, where would you choose? I would go to the moon. I don't think I want to go to Mars. I know that's probably controversial for a lot of space people. Well, just not not until they can make the journey quicker. Mm. Yeah. I think, because I don't think I would do well with being that far away from Earth and not being able to see it. Whereas I think if you go to the moon, it's a couple of days there, a couple of days back, it's not too bad. You get to bounce around and you actually, on the way, would get to these incredible views of the planet in a way that literally well a handful two handfuls of people who have actually ever managed to do I, you know i think it would be amazing to get to a point where you could see all of the earth but if you go too much further away and yeah like it just becomes a speck that or a pale blue dot I, yeah i don't know i, I don't th i think i would be too unnerved by that for me if it was physically possible to go to titan i'd like to go to titan so that i could see saturn close up yeah that'd be cool, that'd be cool. assuming it was a shorter journey and 
we had the technology, Europa would be really cool, especially if we could, you know, do some research while we were there to see what's under the ice, if there really is an ocean, if there's some life there, that would be amazing to, to find out. Definitely. I, I'm also an oddball here. I'm also a lunatic. I, you know, growing up, even now, like I'm obsessed with looking up at the moon. I, I'd love to spend a year on the moon and um, just to be able to look back at Earth as well and see Earth like I'm looking up at the moon, uh, just seeing it in the sky. And also, I mean, that's what I studied too, you know, studying dust and everything else. And so, and clearly I'm working on a lunar lander. So I have this linkage to wanting to be involved with lunar exploration. But having said all that, um, you know, Mars exploration is definitely the, uh, the goal, the target. There's, there's things that we can do along the way that include the moon. And so that's where I, I actually want to go. Um, but all those like, you know, cool, planets Europa, Enceladus, like all the ones that are just volcano showers of ice particles and everything like I think those would be unbelievable. Going back to astronomy here, uh, you know, Saturn was one of those first things that blew my mind through a telescope. And like, I can see the rings. This is, doesn't make any sense. I'm like, this, there's not a photo on the end of the lens here, right? This is real. And like, it really blew me away to like, to see something like that. I know when uh, Ross from UK Astronomy, whenever he's doing one of his stargazing events and somebody sets up a telescope towards the moon or somewhere like that, and then Ross goes, oh, I found Saturn. And everybody goes <laughs> towards him. It's that cool. If you ever are near a telescope or an event or whatever, and, and someone says Saturn, you drop your other telescope and you run. <laughs> <laughs> what if you don't actually drop it? That would be really bad for the telescope. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, if you can actually yeah, can carry it, it, that it means it's ground. not a very good scope, right? Because it's not very, it's yeah. not going to be big enough. So, <laughs> Some of these setups I've seen in the UK astronomy group it looked like Ed 209 from, from Robocop. They're huge things. I mean, thousands and thousands of pounds worth of uh, equipment, but the results you get from them are absolutely spectacular. That's why I like the moon, because it's just there. Even if you don't have a telescope, you can still, yeah. you know, I, I just love it. I just love looking up at it. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was in Italy at the time, and it was during a full moon. And I was looking at the full moon, and he was looking at the full moon. We're in two different countries looking at the same thing at exactly the same time. That is quite a special feeling, knowing that you start could be- singing together as well then? <laughs> <laughs> There's a movie about this. <laughs> involves I... a small mouse. <laughs> I, well, so when I lost my mother, um, I went, I decided I was gonna travel the world. And I left my grandmother a different letter that she could read every week. And the first one, I said, um, these are my stars. And I'd chosen the, I never know how to pronounce them, if it's the Pleiades, the Pleiades, or... You can just say Subaru. And, Subaru is cool, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I, I carefully drew a little map with the stars that she would recognize and sort of, you know, a bit up here and a bit up there and squint. And those are my stars. And I said, I'm going to look at those stars you can look at those stars and we will still be together. Great, that's a nice thing. I thought, off I went. And for the first time ever, I crossed the equator. And I got off the plane. <laughs> and I looked up, thinking of my gran, and went, oh, this doesn't feel right. Oh my gosh, wrong sky. <laughs> I didn't, I never told her that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was definitely looking at the... <laughs> now we've had a question, we've kind of brushed on this already. Uh, if we succeed in colonizing Mars, what do you think of how humans will evolve? 
I don't. I don't think we should. Not colonize. Uh, we've made a mess of one planet already. We shouldn't start making a mess of another one. But what do you think about the fact that humans will evolve whilst they're up there? I mean, people that will be born on Mars, obviously they won't be Earthlings. They'll be Martians. So it's a difficult one, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I guess the big question is, have they watched The Expanse yet? Because that's, that's one way it might play out. So <laughs> there's always going to be humanity, no matter where we are. So we need to know best of, you know, how do we prepare for that aspect of it and, and maintain that? And I think that's the harder question than the actual physiological parts, because we have no idea. We have no idea how uh, bodies will develop in one-third gravity. We've got some science that we've done. We've done some microgravity science on small organisms, of course. But uh, yeah, there's it's giant questions, right? So it's almost like you have to jump all the way to the sci-fi world to look at what are some what are other people's ideas of what that might look like instead of just being, you know, everything is awesome because um, that's what we want. But that's not necessarily reality. Let's just hope it doesn't become Lord of the Flies. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how the expanse kind of goes, really, with the different planets and the areas in space all uh, not battle. Well, I suppose you could say battling against each other politically because the Mars is more of a warring faction than the, the rest of the, the colonies and stuff. But uh, yeah. Um, yeah. All these politicians um, just need to calm down and be friendly. <laughs> they just need to become, come and be part of the space family. We'll all be nice to each other. Yeah. yeah. We need to start wrapping things up now, but I wanted to ask you guys quickly, what's coming up next for you? Maybe lunch? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, because Janelle, you've got a, a another uh, I, talk you're doing, haven't I you? I do, yeah. So as part of our the Continuing Astronomy in April Festival, um, on the 24th at noon, we're, we're going to talk about DNA and, and how things might, um, the research we've done on DNA in space. Kate Rubin's, you know, first looked at DNA in space, which is really cool. In fact, going back to the dinner conversation, I think I, I would like to have her because I met her when she was in Afghan and to, you know, to now be able to talk to her as after yeah. she's been in space would be amazing. Yeah, so we're going to be doing that and, and we'll be extracting DNA from strawberries as well. So it's, it's a it's a fun one for the, the kids to come along to as well. And then I'm back to uh, teaching after Easter break. So that's, that's good in this crazy time of no exams and trying to figure out student grades. So that's going to be the fun part. <laughs> Right, you're involved with Yuri's Night Kids, aren't you, this year? Yep, so on Monday, April 12th, the actual anniversary, 60th anniversary of First Human Space, I've helped set up a Yuri's Night Kids with Janet's Planet, and we have some really cool guests that are going to be on that, including astronaut Nicole Stott and my good friend Dr. Cyan Proctor who's just selected to go to space on the Inspiration4 mission. So I'm really excited about that. Eddie Gonzalez from Goddard um, who is a not just an advocate but now a leading role of diversity and inclusion for uh, STEM for education. So really looking forward to chatting with them and the cool thing about it because it's the kids event and you're like okay well we've got all these like you know older people talking is that we have a bunch of Janet's students that she's worked with through different types of programs as the moderators they're preparing some questions for each panelist and really the the goal is to connect you know people of all ages and to really be able to connect to those kids give them an opportunity to obviously meet an astronaut is always cool right so that's the goal of it and I wanted to do that because 
tonight is the main uh, live stream. And so that starts at, uh, I don't even know time zones anymore. So 7 p.m. Uh, New York time, Eastern time. So you can figure out, I think you said it was midnight, midnight in the UK. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, that's going to be a three hour program and that's going to be pretty exciting. There's a lot going on. They just announced like Michael Franti is going to be playing a song on it, but that'll be like three in the morning in the UK, but it is being recorded so you can catch up on that. So that, anyway, that, that event really, you know, it really hits for more of the adults and um, really speaks to kind of like that sort of audience. So the kids event really kind of hopefully fills in a little bit for some of the youngsters as well. And Kate, you've just started a new job, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I'm just doing some freelancing, but um, I've got a couple of irons in the fire. And there was just a conference on Friday, uh, Impulse 2021, which brought a whole lot of uh, space communicators and outreach people together. And I've met some new people who are doing really cool stuff. So I'm really excited to have a chat and see what we can do together. Whilst you're talking there, Kate, we just said someone called Paula Malone who said that she loved uh, your story about your your grandma. It was weird. I'd never crossed. The, I'd, I'd never really thought about that. I mean, the world is small, but actually, yeah, I'd never crossed the equator, and it, it was <laughs> it was so strange. I, it didn't even really. I mean, I knew that it would be different, but it didn't occur to me. And when you look up and it's different stars, like I'm not, you know, I couldn't tell you all of the different constellations. I'm not an astronomer. I know a few of them, but even just glancing, it, it was like, oh, this feels wrong. <laughs> Very surreal. Try it sometime when we're allowed to travel again. I mentioned there that Ryan Kobrick will be taking part in Yuri's Night Kids in conjunction with Janet's Planet, which there will be links to both the live stream and Janet's Planet in the show notes, along with a video version of 60 Years and Beyond, a celebration of human spaceflight, and a special video about the life of Yuri Gagarin that I created for the 60th anniversary of his flight. What Ryan didn't mention that was a few hours after our live stream, he would be appearing on the Yuri's Night official global live stream, chatting to none other than Bill Nye the Science Guy. Of course, there'll be a link to the entire global live stream in the show notes too. There has been an influx of Yuri's Night live streaming events in 2021, with Japan taking part, Germany, Ireland, Canada, Morocco, Poland, and even our friend Josh Barker hosted an event for the National Space Centre in Leicester. In fact, when I was setting up our event, I was watching the Yuri's Night Moscow livestream, and even though I couldn't understand a word that was being said, I felt really emotional knowing that our little event was going to be part of something happening all over the world. There will be links to as many of these live streams as I can find in the show notes also. Hello everyone, this is Steph Ebbs of the YouTube channel The Stimulus. One of the main reasons I started my channel was in the hopes of inspiring young people to pursue their interest in science, technology, engineering, and math careers, or STEM careers. And events like Yuri's Night are very important in achieving the same goal. In this case, promoting an interest in space exploration. Yuri's Night is a celebration of the achievements of the past that will likely inspire the heroes of the future that will lead us out into the solar system. And that's why Yuri's Night helps rock the planet. We can thank the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, for many things. They invented the space race, they put the first people in space, the first dogs in space, the first spacewalker, the first robot car on the moon. I never met Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, but I did meet Alexei Leonov once. And he would have been the man to land that, the lunar cabin, the Soviet moon lander on the moon surface if only the N1 moon rocket had worked and the Russians had got there before the Americans. 
I never ever ever thought I'd see that. That was secret for so many years and it's wonderful to see it here at the exhibition Cosmonauts at the Science Museum in London celebrating our greatest achievement. So thank you everybody in the American and Russian space programs because without their efforts we wouldn't be able to do stuff like this today. We wouldn't have the great technological advance which led to microprocessors and data storage which allows me to do things like this. But thank you, Yuri. Thank you, Alexei. Happy Yuri's night. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Once again, I have to thank Ryan Kobrick, Kate Uckless Gray, Janelle Harrier Wilson, and of course Loretta Hildalgo Whitesides for taking time out to make the event possible. Ross and Frankie Hockham for making sure the behind the scenes part of the event went smoothly, and of course everyone who sent in questions for us. I also have to thank Steve Dix from Liquid Management for giving us permission to use Gagarin by Public Surface Broadcasting for our Yuri's Night theme. If you haven't already heard the Race for Space album, go check it out because it is quite literally out of this world. I also want to give a shout out to my little buddy Aston Smith because he was a little bit upset that he didn't know I was doing a live stream. So that leads me to say, stay safe everyone, thanks for listening and rock the planet. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Just got it. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.